This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Army's top enlisted leader joins us to talk about how he's addressing two of the branch's biggest issues, sexual assault and suicide. Then, the federal government is working on a way to protect information from the future's most powerful computer. But one of the top encryption algorithms under consideration was cracked in less than an hour. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. He's the most senior enlisted soldier in the Army and the eyes and ears for all other enlisted service members. Joining us is Sergeant Major of the Army, Michael Grinston. Two issues that are very important to you personally and that the Army has struggled with historically are sexual assault and suicide. First, I want to talk about sexual harassment and assault. Um, reports of both have increased over the, the recent years. Why is that? I think fundamentally we haven't looked at it from two perspectives. One is from prevention and then one is response. We have to have world-class response, but we really need to focus on prevention <clears throat> and that way we'll see the numbers going down. We need world-class response, but most of our programs have been focused to the reaction to sexual assault. To truly get the numbers down, we have to focus on prevention, the environment, and making sure that we don't have these things in the first place. And I think that's where we're heading in the future. And, and I know that you're very passionate about that. Why is that? Well, these are our soldiers, and um, I just think we have to do better. Uh, our soldiers deserve it. Our country deserves uh, to have this kind of Army values instilled in our soldiers, and we got to protect them no matter what. So we're going to do better. I promise. A lot of times the numbers that you're getting are, can be years old. How does that affect your ability to really address this problem? Yeah, this is, this is the, the new way we're, we need to look at it. We, we can't just get perfect data. And sometimes these cases take a long time. And that really hurts us. If it takes us two years to get the information that we need, we're probably going to solve the, the wrong problem. We just need to go with the information that we have now, acknowledge that it may not be perfect, but then take an action to prevent it. If we wait two years to get the information, I think uh, it's not going to be relevant to what we're doing now. Is there something that can be done to get those numbers quicker? Yes, absolutely. We know when something happens. Uh, the hard part is we don't know when something doesn't happen. And so, again, that goes to response to prevention. We can see that our numbers are staying flat or decreasing right now based off of an allegation. And I think that's where I have to go is it's not going to be perfect. We just assume that um, if there is an allegation, what could we have done to prevent this to ever be even become an allegation? Let's talk about the command culture itself. What needs to happen to that to change that environment, make it a safer environment for everybody? This is one of those things we've talked about a lot in the last three years is the culture in the command climate. We have to know our people. Um, we have to see if they're struggling with anything. Um, if you got a, you know, a bad day or somebody said something inappropriate to you, you have to notice that. The only way you're going to notice that 
is a culture of knowing your people, my squad, know who's in it. Notice if they don't say anything that day that's odd or what's that look on your face. I think the only way you, uh, you're going to really realize what's going on with people as a leader is understanding them as a person and truly knowing them and their families. You know, I, uh, Sergeant Major, I don't need to tell you this, but the Army's really good at training. So yeah. why can't this bad behavior be trained out of people? Yeah, that's, it's a difficult, it, first, it's a really difficult uh, topic for Americans and not just, uh, you know, in the military. But what we've seen is sometimes it's the timing of the training. And so we were doing training at the three-week mark, and we moved it to the three-day mark in basic training in AIT. As new soldiers were coming in, they didn't understand that that, uh, that action they took may be considered abusive sexual contact. So we have to say, hey, you can't do the, the slap on here or slap on there because that's not appropriate in the Army. That's actually sexual assault. So moving that training from three weeks to three days, we've seen a 50% decrease in those type of sexual assaults in basic training in AIT. You know, many cases do go unreported. Uh, it's a very sensitive topic. What can you do to encourage victims to speak up, especially if the perpetrator is in the chain of command? Yeah, that's, a, that's still a difficult, uh, you know, question. We want our soldiers to feel comfortable with everybody in the chain of command. Uh, if, if you're immediate chain of command, please go to the next hire. So, the, again, this culture of knowing your soldiers, but if that immediate supervisor is the one doing it, uh, we have special uh, assault uh, victim coordinators, we have hotlines, we have plenty of places and resources that you can call and get after, but that's still response. We want to create that environment where that uh, supervisor isn't doing that, and we have uh, plenty of people that can help. Going that. upstream, uh, as yeah. you like to say. Yeah. Um, earlier this year, the Army launched uh, the Fusion Directorate. Tell us about that. What's that about? Yeah, this is uh, really exciting. So you have this one location. It's called the Fusion Directorate. You can go, and if you need to talk to a counselor, if you have, want, need to see CID agent because you have been assaulted, or you know you get any resource numbers, it's all in one area. You don't have to go to 15 different buildings. It's one location, and there's synergy, so that you when you have a, an issue, it can be addressed, and you don't have to go to multiple places. We are piloting that in six locations, and we're really excited about the Fusion Directorate. Um, going back downstream then, let's yeah. talk about justice. Once an assault or harassment does happen, what are you doing to make sure that perpetrators are brought to justice and are held accountable? Yeah, um, we've restructured our uh, CID agents. So, Which is what? Uh, the Criminal Investigation uh, Department. So we bring in the investigators, that will look at sexual assault, we've um, made those where they're actually more civilian, so they don't move as much. So when they know the environment, they know the location, they know who to, who to call um, when anything bad happens, meaning the local police, because some of these are off the installation. So having a restructuring of the, the CID actually helps us, you know, kind of bring those perpetrators to justice faster. All right, well, Sergeant Major, we're going to pause right here, and then we'll continue after the break. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion with Sergeant Major of the Army, Michael Grinston. On the other side of the break, we'll talk about another troubling trend, the rise in soldier suicides. 
But if you are in the DOD and experiencing sexual harassment or assault, here's a list of resources you can reach out to for help. We'll be right back. We're back with Sergeant Major of the Army, Michael Grinston. Sergeant Major, in 2021, saw the highest number of soldier suicides in recent history. Uh, 2020 was the second highest. What's going on? What's behind that increase? Well, we really couldn't pin it down to one particular area. We, we can assume that COVID kind of just took us apart. You know, as people stayed home, uh, they were more isolated, and that isolation had an effect. Uh, but we're, we can't just say, oh, uh, that was COVID, and we shouldn't use that excuse. We gotta continue to reach out, uh, but we're assuming that some of this was because our soldiers weren't connected to their units, they weren't connected to their families, they couldn't go home, and those connections matter. What are this year's numbers showing so far? So far, we're doing much better than we were last year, and that's promising, at least 20% lower than we were. And I'm skeptical about those numbers because uh, I really hope it wouldn't change, you know, for the rest of the year, but it can spike. Uh, but right now, we're extremely excited that the, the numbers are lower, um, but we're not satisfied with lower. We want, clearly, we want zero suicides. What are some of the things, the initiatives that you're doing to reduce that number? Well, uh, one of the things we just started with is applying leadership, and we're going to talk about this every month, bring all the senior enlisted leaders across the globe, all the way Korea to Italy and across the U.S., and just have a discussion on suicide. And it's a product of learning. It's about getting up further upstream so that we share those ideas and say, here's what we're doing. Here's one thing specifically that we've seen is we have what's called, one of the things is a leader engagement tool where we can go in and we say, okay, what's going on in the barracks? What's happening? And we can apply the crime report on there and say, hey, do we have leaders checking on their soldiers enough? But there's, there's more initiatives and we're really working hard to get those numbers down. The Army does provide uh, behavioral health services, but you say that's not enough. Yeah, I really believe that uh, this is about those connections that we all, you know, have to ha have a part in this. It's not just about behavioral health. This is, this is about talking to your squad leader or members of your squad, people that are close to you. It's talking to your family. What we've seen is the more connections you have, not just behavioral health, um, the more protective you are. It's not to say it's okay to seek behavioral health. Uh, we're not saying don't seek uh, behavioral health. Absolutely, I've, I've actually gone and I went to behavioral health in November. I was having some issues. I needed to talk to someone. So it's perfectly fine to seek behavioral health. But I don't think that's really gonna get us down to zero where we need to be. You've talked about the golden triangle. Explain what that is. Uh, this is what I'm talking about is those connections, uh, the golden triangle, the soldiers in the middle, then you have family, you have the buddy, meaning someone's close to you, um, you've got your squad leader. So when you can connect the family, the friends, and the unit together, those are protective factors for that soldier in the middle. After behavioral health, you found that there needs to be more follow-up after somebody seeks help then what happens after that? Yes, so one of the programs that we 
we uh, are talking about is we can't just have an inpatient behavioral health and then put soldiers, you know, they're good, put them back in the barracks or put them back in their family because they need to have those connections. So one of the programs we're looking at is what exactly we, would we do to remind soldiers that life is wonderful? <laughs> and how do we keep them connected when they're released from an outpatient behavioral health? We gotta have those connections and we can't just say, oh, you're out of uh, behavioral health, then you should be fine. I, I think you're still at risk or you're higher at risk and we gotta make sure that uh, we check on you more, not less. You know, the issue isn't unique to the Army. How are you working with your counterparts in the other services? Well, we, we talk about this uh, all the time. We're always trying to solve each other's problems. Uh, and, and it's not just our other counterparts uh, in this Army. Uh, I meet once a month with the Five Eyes on a Teams call, and we talk about what we're doing. Um, as a matter of fact, the UK uh, even came out to our summit in June, and we had uh, Canadian, New Zealand, they all came, and they actually provided us feedback. And the, the former Sergeant Major of the Army for uh, the UK said, how about reverse mentorship, where you have soldiers talking to you about what you could do to improve? So we're, we're coming at this from uh, all of those services, uh, other countries, because we all deal with this. Um, and I think that's the way to look at it. Holistically, it's not about just go to behavioral, it's about getting ideas, new ideas, and those connections. You also hold a monthly meeting with all the sergeant majors of the Army. Describe that. Well, it's, it's rather lengthy, um, but we, we start off with, this is what our purpose is. And there's, I, I've given them clear uh, guidance and said, there's two things, I want zero. I want zero sexual assaults and I want zero suicides. Um, but it's not a- That's quite the goal. Yeah, I know. Um, but I think what we looked at two years ago, when we looked at upstream, if you don't have that goal, you're not gonna push yourself far enough. You're not gonna go that extra step to get to zero. Um, so we look at it in a, in a matter of, comp not compliance, but of learning. Here's something I tried. Is that gonna help someone else so we don't have to learn those uh, problems again and again? All right, well, Sergeant Major Grinson, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Coming next, a years-long competition to find a way to protect information in the future from a supercomputer is underway. But first, if you know, uh, if you or someone you know in the military needs help, you can call or text the suicide line and crisis lifeline to get connected to resources. It's confidential and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'll be right back. A future quantum computer would be able to break current internet encryption. That means that anyone with that kind of a computer could hack into previous financial transactions, medical records, and national security secrets. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is working on cryptography that can stand up to an attack by a quantum computer. Edward Parker is a physical scientist at RAND and studies quantum technology and cybersecurity. Edward, welcome to the program. Thank you, happy to be here. All right, explain what the big issue is here because we don't yet have quantum computers. That's correct. So as you mentioned, a new generation of computers are being developed by scientists and technologists called quantum computers. They'll be able to do several types of calculations that are far beyond the ability of our current supercomputers to achieve. 
things like scientific simulation, for example. But the most concerning of these, arguably, is that these new types of computers will be able to break virtually all of the encryption systems currently used to protect internet communications. So a bad actor which has a future quantum computer with very high capabilities could potentially read essentially everything over the internet, which would make the internet essentially useless for things like online commerce or sensitive communications, emails. All of those communications would be readable by someone with a quantum computer. Which is extremely scary, including for national security, because all that's encrypted as well. That is correct. So how far off are we from a quantum computer? No one really knows for sure. There are existing prototype quantum computers that are quite rudimentary, very far from being able to do this kind of code breaking. Uh, some of my colleagues at RAND did a study where they interviewed several experts and asked when quantum computers would become capable of breaking codes. There was a very wide range of estimates. The median, I believe, was around 2035. So this is probably something like 15 years out. But there's huge uncertainty in that estimate. Explain NIST's role, then, in protecting internet traffic right now and in the future. So NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is a government agency which is in charge of establishing a variety of cybersecurity standards, protocols, procedures. And in terms of quantum, what they are doing is coming up with a defense or countermeasure against future quantum computers, which is called post-quantum cryptography, which means new encryption systems, new mathematical ways of encrypting information, which are believed to be not vulnerable to a future quantum computer. So as long as we move our communications over to these new encryption systems, ideally and hopefully the quantum threat will be neutralized after we've done that. Okay, but not too long ago, one of those algorithms that NIST was considering got hacked. What happened? That's correct. So the way the process works is it's quite public. NIST solicited suggestions from the general public for new types of encryption, which would be immune to quantum computers. 69 different algorithms were proposed, and NIST has been gradually mathematically analyzing them and winnowing them down to a small number, which they think truly are really robust. They recently um, announced four different encryption algorithms, which they believe are safe. Those four are still all believed to be safe. But they also announced four alternate algorithms, which they are considering adding in as additional options. And one of those four alternate algorithms has recently been cracked mathematically by a pair of academics in Belgium. They announced a, a mathematical process by which a standard computer, not even a quantum computer, but just an existing computer, could break this decryption very quickly and efficiently. So essentially, it's, it's useless as an encryption measure. Which does not inspire confidence. That is true. I would, I would characterize it as concerning, but not disastrous. So again, there are multiple algorithms that have been selected. The four main candidates are still believed to all be secure. And of the four alternates, one of them has been shown to be vulnerable, but it is one of four and they are alternates. So you recommend opening up a public competition to search for vulnerabilities. Explain how that would work. It's not too different from the current system. The way the current system works is NIST is publicizing these mathematical algorithms and basically asking the general public to 
comment on their security or to find mathematical cracks which would break them. But there's no real concrete incentive to do so. Um, it's, it's really just prestige and, uh, you know, general patriotism, I assume, is incentivizing people and perhaps the promise of tenure and academic publications for the mathematicians who find these flaws. So in a recent uh, commentary, I suggested just adding in an additional financial incentive by having NIST just say, we'll offer a reward for anyone who can find Cold, any of these mathematical cash. flaws. Exactly. <laughs> And, and is it quite challenging, you know, as we wrap this up, to implement an encryption standard once it's adopted? Absolutely. It will be a very complicated, extremely logistically challenging and expensive transition because essentially every compu communication system connected to the Internet today will need to upgrade its encryption. That will probably take many years. President Biden recently issued a national security memorandum ordering the federal government to begin that process. And the goal that President Biden said in that memorandum was, as much of the process should be complete as practical by 2035. So this will be a decades plus transition process. All right, Edward, thank you so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, 
the use of uh, understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.